We are in week four of four, walking uh, through this series within a series that we are doing about uh, exile, the idea, the theme, the grand theme of exile throughout Scripture, one of the big threads that ties together uh, so many different pieces of Scripture from the opening chapters, and as we'll see today, to the very final uh, chapters. And the, the, the entire goal of this little series within a series is to kind of reorient ourselves as we walk through Ezra and Nehemiah, which we'll get back to uh, and we'll start the book of Nehemiah next week. We, we're kind of zooming out so that we can understand uh, in, in grand scale what is happening in, uh, in, in miniature, kind of, whenever you uh, you look at the book of Ezra and Nehemiah. And so uh, the, whole, the whole purpose of this is that we can kind of reorient ourselves to the story of Scripture. And in doing so, we kind of reorient ourselves to the world around us. And it helps us to make sense out of our own lives. It helps us to make sense out of uh, the world that is uh, around us, to make sense out of the news that we see every night, to make sense of, of, of all the different things we see happening this storyline of exile can kind of give a background that allows us to better understand what is going on. It kind of gives us some biblical and theological language to something that we kind of already intuitively understand. And then it can help us see things through other people's eyes as well. In talking about exile, we're talking about a longing for something that has been lost, a longing for something that is not uh, there. The definition that we've kind of used, we've kind of been working with in the, uh, in the, in the, small, uh, the small little bit, the uh, short definition is this memory of a place that we've never been. And so when we talk about exile, that's what we're talking about. We can't quite seem to take hold of it. We can't quite seem to remember it exactly we just know that it's gone, and now we are searching for it. And we're doing this because it helps us better understand how Scripture works. And as we'll see today, it will help us better understand what else is happening uh, around us. We can understand the ache in our bones that drives us to do the things that we do. Uh, let, let me explain it this way. And, and this is what I mean. You say, wait a minute, how can the story of an ancient people uh, and, and the story of a prophecy in Scripture give meaning to my everyday? How can it help me understand what I see with the nightly news? Uh, so l- let me try to couch it this way. Uh, you, and some of you guys are going to take issue with me on this, but just hang with me and I think you'll see what I'm talking about. Do you know that the police officer and the rioter at a Black Lives Matter rally are driven by the same things? I mean, at their core, it's the same impulse that drives them to do what they do, even though they might be in direct opposition with one another. Do you know that the helicopter mom and the drug addict do what they do for the same fundamental problem in their hearts? Do you know the staunch Republican and the committed Democrat do what they do and are driven From the same core place? Do you know the school teacher and the Wall Street trader do what they do because the same thing is at work inside of them? It's the same impulse that pushes them. Do you know what that impulse is? It's exile. 
Now, I don't think you ever would have put those things together, but if you understand what we've been talking about, this, this, this taking away from us, this thing that drives us, I think you'll see what I'm talking about. It's because every one of those people recognizes that something in this world is fundamentally broken. Something is missing. And whatever that thing is has caused the, the world to become something other than what it was supposed to be. Our experience in this world is something less than what it was designed to be. And so all of those people wake up in the morning and they feel something's not right here. So I'm going to pursue something that I think can make that thing right. The Black Lives Matter protester recognizes that there are issues of racial justice and inequalities that should not be. So they take to the streets to protest for justice. The police officer that stands across from that same protester uh, that is, is right across from them recognizes that this world is broken and is malfunctioning. And he sees his job as to put a small piece of that chaos back into working order. The teacher teaches because she believes that her work is part of resetting something that was lost all the way back in Eden. It's bringing some measure of order to a world that has been broken. The Wall Street trader is seeking to find as much as he can in this world so that, so that perhaps he can then take that and buy his way out of exile. And buy his way into home. And make this place his home. The helicopter mom seeks to make sure that all that has gone wrong in this world won't find its way to her child. A battle she cannot win. But a battle she can't seem to not fight. The drug addict is chasing a high that reminds him of a peace that, that he, he seems to remember he once had before it was all lost in the fall. We're all motivated by the same thing, to get back home. We just have different paths to get there. Now we can talk all day long about whether or not people, the, 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 the path that they're taking to get there is the right one or not. But we're all just trying to get home. I'll, I'll quote, uh, use a quote that I, that I use a lot by, by C.S. Lewis. And uh, he, he kind of says it this way. He's discussing the existence of God and a life beyond what we know here with a friend. He's speaking about the end of exile when, he, when he's talking about this. And he says, the existence of bread can, can help prove to us the truth of both exile and God. You say, well, wait a minute, how do you get from bread to God? How, how do those things work? He said the existence of bread proves that people get hungry. If they did not get hungry, they never would have created bread in the first place. There would be no need for it. And if we did not need it, it would never have needed to have been created. But because we do need it to satisfy our hunger, the, our hunger for bread proves to us that the bread exists, and the bread exists because we have a hunger. And he then goes on to say that this teaches us that, this, that there is more than what this world has to offer. 
And this is his quote. He says, If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If we get hungry, it's proof there must be something out there to satisfy that hunger. So if all this is true, what does this mean for us now? If all these things are true, if we all share this commonality, what does this mean for us in the everyday uh, part of our life as we walk through life? And I'll walk through a few different things and look at this from a few different angles this morning. But one thing that it should mean for us is that we should have some measure of empathy and understanding for all people. We may all identify different ways to push back against the darkness. We may all identify different ways to chase this dream of home that we can't quite take hold of. But as Christians, we should be able to pull back just a little bit from the issues of the day and see what is going on and see what is happening here. We should be able to step back and say, I get it. I understand what you're trying to do. I get where you're coming from here. I understand. I'm with you in this. I'm not saying you endorse everyone's views and everyone's actions. That is not what I'm trying to say. I would never tell you to endorse everything that a Republican says or everything that a Democrat says. What I would tell you is that we should be able to see above the maze, right? Not living in the maze with everyone else. We should have some measure of living above the maze and understanding why people are making the turns that they're taking, why they're going the direction that they're going, why they do what they do. We should be able to weep with them when the darkness feels so real. Even when it's not a part of the darkness that we sense or that we feel or that we see, we understand why they feel that part of the darkness. So we should have compassion. We should have empathy. We should care for people. The fact that Christians are the first to pick a fight and demand that everyone else see the world the same way that they do and it is evidence to me that we don't understand our own story very well. As humans, we are all in this exile together. And as Christians, we would do well to see one another as fellow travelers long before we saw one another as enemy combatants. We must be more compassionate people. We must understand why people are doing what they are doing. Yes, we can say, hey, what you're doing, drug addict, this is, not, it, it, this is a temporary high. This is not going to fix things for you. We, we, we can look to people and we can say, no, 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 I see what you're chasing. I see how you're trying to push this darkness back. And where we can join with them in ways that Scripture has called us to join with them, we should. And we should push back that darkness. But we also must understand that ultimately that is a task that cannot be completed this side of a new heaven and a new earth. The overwhelming testimony of Scripture is that bread only temporarily satisfies. The helicopter mom will find no satisfaction in trying to keep the effects of the fall from her children. It is a futile task. The drug user's high won't satisfy. The politicians will let us down. And the justice that we are commanded to pursue ultimately cannot be fully fixed. And why is that? It's because so long as we are here on this earth, we are still in exile. 
we are still in exile. We still haven't found our way home. We are restless and homeless, and we always will be in this place. Augustine says it this way. He says, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it rests in you. You say, wait a minute. I thought you said last week that Jesus took care of all this. I thought you said that he came as an exile, died as an exile, so that we might find our way home. And that's true. But while Jesus has already done that, he has not yet brought that to fruition. Listen to how Paul explains this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And I'm telling you, once you start to see this exile language, you start to kind of hear it and get it working in your head, you'll see it all over the Bible. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 20. Here's what Paul says about that. He says, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Contrast Adam, Jesus here. The two gardens, like we talked about last week. But each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. This is what theologians call the already not yet of the New Testament. The first fruits of our homecoming have happened. But it's not completely fulfilled yet. Jesus has made it back home. The first fruits of our homecoming. We have not. You can see this in 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 1. Peter addresses the, the exiles. And I think... I hate to say this out loud. I think we're going to go through 1 Peter in the fall specifically because of how Peter addresses this. But he says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. He's got two words there that are, that are kind of odd next to each other. Elect, chosen in Christ to be reconciled and redeemed. Exiles, but not yet. Elect, exiles. It's all over the pages of the New Testament. So, so the New Testament sees us as those that are, even though we have tasted the, the, the first fruits of Jesus, we have seen him risen again, we are still living in exile. We are not home yet. It's like, it's like being away a, a, a at school or away a, a from home for a long period of time and then your, your mom comes to visit and, and decides to cook that one meal that you love so much. You get the, the peach cobbler or, or maybe you get, you get like grandma's recipe for the casserole and, and, and suddenly you may be far from home but when you smell it cooking in this place that you're at, it, it takes you back to this place and, and, and this memory is there within you and, and you, you sense it and it's like I am there again. But it's only till that meal is over and then you're back to reality. We do this at, at, at my house. There's all kinds of different ways that this kind of plays out. But one of the ways this plays out is uh, my, my grandma, who, again, I think is probably watching, uh, she used to make for us the, the best homemade ice cream. She would do peach and strawberry. But vanilla was the one that really everybody 
It was the best homemade ice cream. It's way too sweet, but that's what makes it really, really good. Uh, and we would have to eat it in a red Solo cup with a spoon. You couldn't eat it in a bowl. We never had it in a bowl. It's just the way that, that it worked. This is the way that, that we did it, right? Um, well, now my, my grandmother lives in Florida, but she's given the recipe to my sister, and my sister will make this ice cream for us during the summer. I think it'll probably be coming pretty soon. And here's the thing. If I get that ice cream with that recipe in a red Solo cup and I start eating it, I am eight years old at my grandma's pool in her backyard again for just a second. Just for a, just for a second. And all of the rest of the world kind of fades away just for a second. It's that idea that, that I think we're talking about when we say we have this sense in us. We, we, we have these moments where it feels like we're home. And then as soon as that moment is here, it's gone again. That's kind of how New Testament Christianity works. Home is so close we can taste it. If we close our eyes and we focus hard enough, we can almost imagine we're there. But then the world keeps banging into us. And it kind of jars us out of that kind of dream state that we have going on. The world keeps banging into us and it it really keeps us from being home. And this is the other thing that, that understanding exile can teach us. It can teach us how to suffer well. When the world keeps banging up against us, when the suffering comes, we, we are able to remember that it is temporary and that one day it will be made right. Paul says it like this in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. He says, For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen, this is the opposite of what you would think. The things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Paul is saying that the things of this world, as heavy and absolutely crushing as they may be, I am not minimizing our suffering here at all. It is intense. It is painful. It is real. As crushing as they may be, they are not forever. They will not last. There is an end to the exile that is coming. The end may be beyond the horizon. It may be clouded by a fog so dense that you cannot imagine it to be true. But it is real. And in the biggest surprise of all, it's the things that seem to be the most real, the things that we can see, that we can feel, that we can touch, the tangible things, the graveside, the hospital bed, the divorce papers, the infertility clinic, the jail cell, the bankruptcy court, all of those things that feel so very real here, those things are transient. They are passing away. It's the things you can't see. Hope, joy, redemption, restoration, consummation, home. That's the things that are eternal. If we know our place in the story, it changes how we see ourselves. It changes how we see our neighbors and our friends. It changes how we see the world around us. And it changes what the world can do to us. You see, if we, are, if we are made for this world, then the things of this world, by proxy, have the, bil- the ability to crush us. If we're made for this world, the things of the world can crush us. But if we are made for another world, then the things of this world only have so much power, and their power cannot go any further. It robs Satan of his biggest weapons. 
2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 3. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according for the flesh. For the weapons of the warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. Satan's weapons are in this world and of this world. Ours are of another world. Knowing our place in our story teaches us how to fight and the kind of battle that we are fighting. Knowing our place in the story teaches us how to persevere, how to endure, how to suffer well, how to long for the right things and stop chasing after the things of this earth. And so here we are now. We're three-fourths of the way through this series, a little bit more than that because I'm halfway through this message this morning. We're three-fourths of the way through this series, but the question still remains. Okay, pastor, I get it. We have lost home. We long for home. Would you quit telling me how much we long for home? I feel that. I know it. I see it. The question remains, will we ever make it home? A few years back, I think I've used this in a sermon a few times because I, I think it just annoyed me so much. But a few years back, we went to the beach, uh, and we went, we went down to 30A, just outside Destin. And you, you have to drive basically all the way through the state of Alabama whenever you do that. I have no idea why anybody would want to live in that state. But uh, you have to drive like all the way through the state of, of Alabama. And when you go through Birmingham, like there's no accidents, there's no, like there's eternal construction, but no lanes are closed. And you just sit there like it just takes forever it's supposed to be according to uh, my maps it's supposed to be like a nine hour drive and I think the first time that we made this trip when we came back it was like a 13 hour drive back it was like are we ever going to get through this this is just ridiculous and so you just sit there you just it just takes forever anyway for, for, for many that that is what life and death is like it's like constantly traveling, but never making it home. It's like constantly being on the move, but you never ba- make it back to that, that place of, of, of comfort. It's, it, it's like always being on the move, always being unsettled, never at ease, never in comfort, always traveling, and never finding that place where you pull into your driveway when you sit on your couch, when you lay your head on your own pillow in your own bed. Always traveling, never home. If you never find your rest in God, if you never follow Jesus, this is what awaits you an eternity of exile. Eternal punishment in the scriptures is talked about in several different ways, but I think the most common way it is talked about is banishment and exile. Whereas being found in Christ, it it looks like a homecoming. That's the contrast you have in scripture. Listen to this passage from Ephesians 2 in light of this idea of exile. I'm telling you, it's all over the Bible when you start thinking about it this way. So Ephesians 2 verse 12. This is going to be a bit of a long one, but listen to it. Hang hang with me on this one. So Ephesians 2, verse 12. Remember that you were separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. What's a good word for that? Exile. Remember you were an exile. This is what Paul says. 
no hope, and without God in the world. This is what we should think of when we see those around us. And not with a vitriol and with a hate, but with a sadness and a compassion to know they long for that home and they have no hope for it without God. But that first word of verse 13 is a beautiful one. But. But now in Christ Jesus, you have one... You who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. You who are in exile have been brought home by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and he preached peace to you who were far off, that's us, and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and the members of the household of God. You are no longer exiles. Why? Because Jesus, through the blood of the cross, he he abolished that hostility that was there. He ended exile. And you are no longer strangers and aliens, but fellow citizens. You are home members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are built together into a what? A dwelling place, a home for God by the Spirit. From exile separated from Christ to a dwelling place for the Spirit. Home. This is what salvation is. It is our welcome home. The end of our exile. What made the Garden of Eden special was not that it was beautiful, though I'm sure that it was. Not that it was full of nature's bounty as it grew without the burden of the curse. What made the Garden of Eden so beautiful was the presence of God with his creation uninterrupted. It was that heaven and earth did not have this clear line where the two had to be separate. Instead, the two were alike because God was there in both. Heaven was in many ways one with the earth. After the fall, all this was taken from us. The reality was no more. Home became a mist, a fog, a distant memory, and all of human history has been the attempt to get back to that place, to the place we call home, the place where we were with God and he dwelled with us. That's the beginning of the story that goes awry, and the rest of the story is this constant question, will we ever make it back there. And it's not until we get to the very end of the book that we get our answer. So turn with me to Revelation chapter 20. Revelation chapter 20. We 
Listen to this language. Listen to the way that this is talked about. Revelation chapter 20, 21, 22 is going to be how uh, the Bible ties up all these grand themes and threads that run through it. They all get tied up in these last few chapters. Revelation 20, verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne, and in him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were open. And then another book was opened, which was the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book, he was what? Exiled. Thrown into the lake of fire. Permanent exile apart from Christ. The fate for each of us apart from Christ. Permanent, endless, unending exile. Then Revelation 21. But then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. That's another one of those big themes in Scripture. Wedding, marriage, and the bride. I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride before, adorned before her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and Omega, the beginning of the end. To the thirsty I will give the spring of water of life without payment. How beautiful is that? The holy city, the bride, these other mega themes finding their resolution here in Revelation chapter 21. But what else is there? The dwelling place of God is with man. It's just like Eden all over again. What was lost in Eden is now restored. The end of exile. Just like Eden, just like in the person of Jesus, God dwells with man. Just like in us, through the Spirit, God dwells within us. And here, there finally is no more not yet. It is fully consummated. And in this consummation, all the things that we felt so viscerally in this world, all the things that took our breath away, that knocked us back, that made us stumble, that caused us to fall, all these things that took our joy away, that took our hope away, they are no more. They are done. They are gone. No death, no tears, no mourning, no crying, no pain. They are gone. Why are they gone? Because we're home. We're finally home. Chapter 22. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, brightest crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, through the middle of the street of the city. 
Also on the other side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be... What are, what are we describing here? It's another garden. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads, and night shall, will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or of sun for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. It's another garden. The story begins with a garden, and the story ends with a garden. It begins with the one that we ruined, and it ends with the one that God has put back together, restored, reconciled. And you and I are invited back to the garden, back home. Would you come back home? It's how the book ends. The end of exile. All those longings we feel in our bones fulfilled. No longer a dream that we can't wrap our arms around. No longer a fog and a mist that we just kind of feel our way around. It is the end of an exile, a longing fulfilled. And a home restored. This is our story. This is the eternal weight of glory that Paul was talking about. This is what awaits us. This is what is before us. This is our story. This is the story we have to share with the world around us. Not a story of hatred, not a story of anger, not a story of fighting, a story of how to get back home. Oh, I pray God would make us better at telling that story. I pray God would make us people that care enough to tell that story. Because that is the story that gives us the things that matter. It gives us hope and it gives us home. So my question is for you this morning. Do you know your way back home? It only comes in one way. It only comes through Jesus Christ. There is no other way home. Your political activism will not get you there. Your social justice will not get you there. Your good deeds, your money, your hard work, the way you care for your family, that will not get you home. It may be a way to help make home a little different here, but it is temporal. My question for you is, do you, do you want to be home? And if you do, Come to Christ. Come to Jesus. Come to the one who was born in exile and died in exile, that he can reconcile you to that place. I'm going to pray here. We're going to wrap up here in just a second. I'll be available over here in the side or in the back, and you can come. We can pray together. We can talk together. I'll be available afterwards. There's a, a, so many people in here that would love to walk through and talk to you about this. Don't leave today wondering if you will get home. Don't leave today with your maps all messed up where you're just feeling yourself around in the dark trying to figure out, can I make it? I want you to come home. I want you to come home with Jesus. And I'd love to be able to pray with you about that. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for this promise. 
Thank you that you do not just leave us longing for home as a punishment for our sin, but instead you made us a way home in spite of our sin. Thank you that, that Jesus came, that he ended exile for us. Help us to have faith and to believe in the truth of the end of the exile in Christ through the blood of the cross. Father, thank you for home. That the home shattered in the beginning can be restored in the end. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.